This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so excited today to have on somebody I've admired for a long time, and I just met him seconds ago, and that is Dr. Mm-hmm. Frank Turek. Frank, thank you so much for coming to the More to Story podcast. Andy, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You, you know, people might, uh, I hope some people know you already, but if not, I'm really glad to introduce them to you. I love the way God has called you to use your gifts and your rhetorical ability to go on college campuses, be active on YouTube, active on various channels to really bring the gospel into very dark places. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to faith and what led you to this type of ministry? Yeah, well, I grew up in uh, in New Jersey, so I was Catholic because it's the law. I don't know if you know that. And uh, I always knew that God existed. I knew there had to be a first cause. I knew that there was a God, uh, just, I, you know, just through natural theology, just, well, someone had to create all this, right? right There's right. an effect known as creation. There must be a cause, a creator. But I never really knew who Jesus was or how he fit in. So when I was in the Navy, I wound up rooming with the son of a Methodist minister, and I had so many questions for him. He said, you just need to get Josh McDowell books, Evidence huh. Demands a Verdict and More sure. Than a Carpenter. So I read those books, and I realized, wow, this really looks like it's true. And then when I got out of the Navy, uh, about a year after I got out of the Navy, I met Norman Geisler, who was the, the head of Southern Evangelical Seminary here in Charlotte. He had just started it. And uh, it wound up that I was interested in apologetics, evidence for the faith. And that's what this whole seminary is about. And so in 1993, my wife and I and our three kids, three sons, moved to Charlotte and Mm. attended seminary. And then he and I wrote a couple of books together. One's called Legislating Morality and the other's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, then in about 2007 or so, I started a ministry called CrossExamine.org, where we go to colleges, high schools and churches and present evidence that Christianity is true. And most of that you can see on our YouTube channel because we stream everything from a college campus and then we put uh, the Q&A up there as well. So there's over a thousand short Q&A videos on our website that deal with college students asking questions and us trying to give a, you know, kind of a short response. Yeah, I love it. And this relationship you had with Norman Geisler, who's a really obviously well-known person in the evangelical tradition. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, obviously he was somebody who was, you were very close with him and a lot of his process and in his arguments are things that you've taken on and taken to a, a very public level. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, he, uh, when I met him, was sort of the Michael Jordan of apologetics. I mean, <laughs> uh, in fact, when he died, he died in 2019. They counted up how many books he either wrote, co-wrote, or re-released after an initial release, you know, rewrites and that kind of thing. The total number of books was 129. Amazing. So, so he has written more books than most people have read. In fact, he's <laughs> probably written more books than most people have read, you know, 10 or t- 10 or 20 times as many because uh, he was just so prolific. And as I say, I wrote a couple of them with him and uh, he was uh, a brilliant philosopher and apologist and someone who could explain the opponent's position better than the opponent could explain it and then refute it, you know, in the next sentence. And so I learned so much traveling with him and learning from him and he's seeing him answer questions. So that's really how I got into this. 
Yeah. I, one of the things I love to hear you do when I've listened to your debates on college campuses, and even just the title that you use of the book that you and Dr. Geisler wrote together, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, is you have the, the turnaround phrase. Like so often you take what people give to you and you understand where they're coming from, but you, you turn it around on them. So I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's one of your books. It's been the name of one of your shows in the past. Um, tell me even about that phrase. Like how does, how does that work? Well, that actually, I didn't name the book. Uh, oh, okay. We were, well, I we did. I, I didn't come up with it. I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, Dr. Geisha and I used to travel the country doing a seminar called The 12 Points That Show Christianity is True, which is essentially an outline he developed over the years to go step by step from does truth exist all the way to the Bible is the word of God. And uh, at one point we were going through, or he was going through the fine tuning argument for the existence of a designer. You know, the universe is fine tuned, so there must be a fine tuner out there. And he, he was just going through some pretty persuasive evidence. And after he finished, he said, look, in light of all this, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And I went, that needs to be the title of our book. Wow. Right. Because we were about to turn it into a book. And so we submitted it as the title. And originally the publisher said, oh, we don't like the title. I said, you don't like the title. What do you mean you don't like the title? What's wrong with the title? And they said, well, we think we should call it the truth about truth. And we said, sorry, it's a deal breaker. If you don't like the title, we're going to another publisher. And they said, OK, wow. we'll take the title. And thankfully, <laughs> They stuck with the title because it's a counterintuitive title. And that's the beauty of it. Right. You think, oh, the Christians have all the faith. No, it's the atheists that have all the faith, actually. Right. And the, 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 the word faith in this context, we're using it in the way the culture uses the word faith, not really the way the Bible uses it. You know, the Bible uses the word faith to say, really, it's trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. But the culture thinks faith is if you don't have evidence, you have faith. It's blind, in other words. Right. And so what we're saying is the atheists have blind faith to believe what they believe because there's so much evidence pointing to the fact that God exists and that Christianity is true. They're the ones that have to have all the blind faith, not us. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of those key points that you go through when you talk about that uh, with the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist? Fine tuning, you already mentioned. But what are right. Some well, we do, uh, we do four questions when we go to a college campus or even a church. The four questions that need to be answered are, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament reliable enough to let us know if the resurrection occurred? Because if the resurrection's occurred, the resurrection really did occur, Christianity is true. If it didn't occur, it's false. So we deal with those four questions, truth, God, miracles, New Testament. And uh, so you have to deal with truth because people will say there's no truth. you got your truth. I got my truth. And when they say that, we just point out it's self-defeating, right? To say there's right. no truth is a truth claim. You know, right, is that right. true? There's no truth. Yeah, right. you, know, you can't get away from it. So, of course, there's truth. Otherwise, you'd never go to college. You'd never try and learn anything. Right. Of course, there's yeah. truth. Now, let me uh, interrupt you there. Um, mm -hmm. I'll say, uh, since I am, uh, there's no doubt about it, and it comes through in this interview that I'm a, I'm a Frank Turk fan, a Dr. Frank Turk fan. And therefore, my kids are Frank Turk fans too. So you're the great intro to the great intro to your radio show, which is on American Family Radio, and mm -hmm. uh, here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, we're connected to that network. My kids will say um, they they hear your intro, which says, "So when somebody asks you about about truth uh, that you don't believe absolute truth, you 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 have it." 
is that true? Right. So my is kids that true? In the car, they just say it. They say it with uh-huh. you every time. Is that oh, good. true? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, well, once, you know, I really think that's the key, Andy. That one idea of turning a claim on itself is really half of what you need to know to defend the Christian faith, because so many so many positions that atheists and agnostics or unbelievers have are literally self-defeating. You know, they say there's, there's no truth. Well, is that true? They say, Oh, I get to live my truth. And you ask them, is that the truth or just your truth? Right. Right, I mean, if it's the truth, then it's not just your truth. And if it's just your truth, in other words, if it's just my truth, it's just my opinion, then why should I believe it? It's not grounded in anything outside yourself. Right. Right. Or they might say um, all truth comes from science. And then you ask them, well, does that truth come from science? No, no, that's a philosophical claim. You can't prove that in the laboratory and you can't do science without philosophy. That's part of the what, what, what we cover in the book, Stealing from God. Or they might say, you ought not judge. And then you ask them, well, is that a judgment? You know, why are you judging yeah. me for judging? See, yeah, so right. turning claims on itself is very important. And it, it helps people that often when I've used that, and you've helped me get there, when I've used that, uh, they often don't know what to say back. And I'm not trying, unfortunately, it can seem like a gotcha sort of moment, but really yeah. it's trying to point out that, existence of truth claims and right, it, right. how that's not so bad for instance uh, so i've i say at this podcast what i'm doing through the more to story podcast is coming at truth through a orthodox wesleyan perspective so like in the that takes the bible seriously that takes the claims the consensual claims of christianity seriously mm-hmm. throughout history so um but i got pushed back as soon as i came out with the podcast to say well how can you say you know what's orthodox Right. And mm-hmm. so th- th- it's the same sort of thing. I think, well, it sounds like you're claiming some orthodoxy right. yourself. Right. You're claiming it's 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 uh, it's not orthodox to say that people aren't orthodox. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's what they're saying, that their orthodox position is, is that every position's true. Yes. Well, yes. how can that be? Right. That's you're claiming that's an orthodox position as well. And of course, they all can't be true. Right. Uh, claims are mutually contradictory, so they can't all be true. Uh, so everybody is coming from a position of an absolute. The only question is, is the absolute true, right? Everybody's yeah. making judgments. The only question is, is the judgment true? I mean, right. atheists make judgments, right? They judge there's no God. They judge the Bible's not true. They judge there's no meaning to life. When you die, you're just going to become worm food, you know, mm. have a nice day, right? There's no, <laughs> there, there's, those are all judgments. The, yeah. the, the only question is, are the judgments true? That's really the issue. And, and that's, that's what I think you need to stay on. You know, are the judgments true? Uh, and because everyone's making judgment. Again, the only question is, is it really a true judgment? Right. I've noticed that you take, and even in your, in your book, Stealing from God, the end, you talk about the, the four-point case for mere Christianity. And yeah. lately, I've used that, that language, mere Christianity, uh, even opposed to saying orthodox, you know, like sure. a traditional conservative. Is that, is that language you think that is more effective, like t- getting to the Well, yeah, because I think it's, uh, it's dealing with just the essentials of the faith, as C.S. Lewis would say, mere Christianity, right? Right. Uh, so we are not going to divide over secondary and tertiary issues. You know, we're not going to divide over mode of baptism or your, your es- eschatological viewpoint, unless it's totally heretical. You know, Jesus isn't right. coming back, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we're not going to divide over the color of the carpet. Certainly, 
We're right. not going to divide over your view of uh, alcohol, right? Uh, I know some Christians will, but or, or divide over the age of the earth, or you know these kind of things, right? Uh, because as Paul says, those things are really Romans fourteen issues. They're they are disputable matters, and you can have your own conviction on it. Just don't try and impose your conviction on somebody else. In fact, that's the orthodox view. Don't impose your conviction on these secondary and tertiary issues that don't have anything to do with salvation or sanctification. Yeah. Don't impose those on, on, on one another. I want to go through in a minute your, your book, uh, Stealing from God. But I want to mm -hmm. jump back to Norman Geisler. And, you know, there was something helpful that you, you produced a few years ago, um, Andy Stanley was also influenced by Norman Geisler at, mm -hmm. at probably at Dallas Theological Seminary. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when he came out with his, you know, probably not the best use of language, thinking of unhitching from the Old Testament. Right. Um, you had him on, and I, it helped me to hear that why he was coming at that perspective was through this same emphasis that you have from Norman Geisler that the real case is for the resurrection. Like if the resurrection mm -hmm. happened, like that's kind of the basis for our faith. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little about that? And like, that was a pretty, I think it's a pretty bold thing for you to do because some folks who might even be your regular listeners would have been the first to kind of um, distance themselves from Andy Stanley, but you decided to take a minute and really um, engage. Yeah. Well, Andy and I learned from the same guy and because of that, we know one another. Uh, and, uh, what Andy's pointing out is that when the first century in the, in the first century, after Jesus rises from the dead, right. the apostles didn't go around to even Jews or non-Jews and say, the reason you need to be a Christian is because this old Testament is inerrant. Right? right now they believe that, but that's not, that's not the, that's not their lead. Their lead is, is because Jesus rose from the dead and as Andy has said, and he's right about this, he said, the New Testament, or let me put it another way, um, Christianity did not originate with a book. It originated with an event, the mm -hmm. resurrection. Mm -hmm. He said, do you realize there were thousands of people who were Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Right. And the answer is yes. Why? Because they witnessed a resurrected Jesus. They didn't read it in a book. Right. They witnessed an event. Jesus appeared to them. And so the approach he's taking is the apostles approach to focus on the resurrection, because if the resurrection really occurred, then everything else falls like dominoes after that. Right. right. Because right. that means Jesus is God and whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God and he promised the New Testament. So you wind up with an inerrant Bible from the resurrection, not because you can go through every single scrap of scripture and answer every possible objection to it. Right. Now, I think we can do that in most cases. There may be some areas where you go, oh, I don't know the answer to this yet. But right. the reason I believe in inerrancy is because Jesus did. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and that's, the, that's the point that Andy's making. And that's the point that Geiser always made, that the, the, the key to inerrancy is Jesus and the resurrection, not the fact that you can uh, give an answer to every supposed problem in the in the scriptures as i say i think we can in fact dr geiser's famous book it was called when critics asked now it's called the big book of bible difficulties where he and tom howe go through about 800 different questions about the bible alleged contradictions and give a cogent answer to them right. uh, that i think that's an excellent book 
But his point, again, is that Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead, because an event occurred. It's an historical event. It's not because we have an inerrant Bible. The reason we have an inerrant Bible is because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the point. Yes, I love that. And I think it's just it's an uh, apologetic tactic. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's how we come at it. And it, it might not be. Um, and, and unfortunately, probably a lot of the people who are listening to that come at it maybe from a discipleship uh, aim. That's why they would listen to Andy Stanley. And so it might seem like, you know, the unhitched comment. And it's unfortunate that that language was used. But nevertheless, like the, the goal is something I think we attach. And you helped me see that, too. So thanks for taking. Yeah, time well, I, I think if you would ask Andy today, because he he said, I'm open to other language unhitched from the Old Testament. I think really what he he meant was unhitched from the Old Covenant, mm. not the Old Testament, right. because the Old Covenant is obsolete, according to the writer of Hebrews, right? We're not under the Old Covenant. And the problem is, is we tend to mix and match our covenants, as Andy put it. And that's true. A lot of the prosperity yeah. gospel nonsense comes out of the Old Covenant, right? Sure. That, that, yeah. that you know, they're, they're quoting from Malachi that God's going to, you know, fill up your storehouses. That's not, a, that doesn't apply to us. Right, right. <laughs> that applied to Israel. And so people are mixing and matching their old covenants. There's a lot in the Old Testament that, that is, is binding on Christians, but it's not the old covenant. You know, right. the, the, the Proverbs are still binding, right? The prophecies that are, are still good, they still tell us the truth about Jesus, uh, some the of the that's revealed. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the descriptions of what uh, of what God is like, obviously, still apply. But his his covenant with Israel doesn't apply to Christians. And yet Christians think it does. Right. There certainly can be ways that we can apply it. But at the same time, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily like govern the mm-hmm. way we look at our lives. That's right. Okay, I want to talk. make sure I get in a little bit about the Stealing from God book, mm-hmm. which I love because it's the same idea that you're able to do with even taking that phrase, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You point out in this book several areas where the where atheists or just people who don't believe in Jesus or don't believe in the historical reality of our faith, what ends up happening is they're dependent upon things that are revealed by uh revealed in scripture revealed by jesus himself so i'm really curious just to kind of walk through these so the the first one that you mentioned is causality how is that something that gets stolen from god well why is this a world of cause and effect i mean think about that in fact when atheists say well there's no evidence for god i stop there's two there's two ways of dealing with that you could ask them well what evidence would you want to see in order to say well it's possible god exists but i kind of put that aside and when they say there's no evidence for god i ask them why is there evidence for anything Mm. i mean why do we live in this world that is so governed by cause and effect and orderly natural laws why is this world orderly and why can Mm. our minds ascertain truths about the real world outside of our skulls, right? Why, why can our three-pound brain ascertain truths about the real world? Uh, that seems to only make sense on a theistic or at least a deistic view of the world, not an atheistic view of the world, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, order, orderliness comes from an orderer. Fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the universe comes from an orderer, from some fine-tuner, right? The, the creation of the universe itself, comes from something outside the creation. And so 
when atheists are trying to use cause and effect to say God doesn't exist, they're actually presupposing this is a world of cause and effect. And then you have to ask them a question. Why is that the case? Why is this world so orderly? Why does everything happen by cause and effect? Why are the natural laws which govern all physical things? Isn't it interesting, Andy, that all physical things change, but it appears that the laws that govern physical things don't change. Right. Why is that? Right. I mean, these are questions that you have to ask. Even the existence of numbers and math. Like, why why do we have this? What does this point to? Like, that that enables you and I to be talking right now. (laughs) Uh huh. Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, And so uh, we cover that, and we also cover in that chapter uh, a atheist by the name of uh, Lawrence Krauss, who wrote a book called "The Universe from Nothing." where he's trying to explain how the universe could come into existence without God. And he fails miserably. Even atheists admit he doesn't, it it doesn't work because his definition of nothing is not nothing. It's actually something. right? And he actually eventually admits that. So uh, that's what we cover. In fact, the book stealing from God, I, I contend that atheists steal aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. And it's in an acronym crime. So we just talked about C R is reason, I is information, M is morality, E is evil, and S is science. These are all things that atheists say somehow point to atheism when, in fact, none of those things would exist in my view. Causality, reason, information, morality, evil, and science, none of those things would exist unless God existed. So they're, they're, they're actually stealing from God to argue against him. They have to sit in God's lap to slap his face. That's what the whole book is about. <laughs> Well, and you said something too, you just, as you got started there by, by starting with it, the, before we got the causality piece, um, this was a helpful piece that I gleaned from you as well, was the going to somebody to say, if you were presented with the truth, would you believe? Maybe that's not how you phrase it. Well, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? That's the question to ask, right? If it were true. And most of the time, the atheists will either hesitate or they'll say no. Because they're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest, right? They don't want there to be a God. They want to be God of their own lives. And they think God is going to get in the way of their happiness. Mm. So what they don't realize is that God's moral commands are in place for our benefit, for our own flourishing. They're not meant to hinder our flourishing, but to advance our flourishing. In fact, Tim Keller gives a good illustration. He says, when you buy a new car, it comes with a manual, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to say... You know, do this if you want to maintain the car well, but don't do these things. If you do these things, you're going to hurt yourself and maybe hurt the car, right? Now, we don't get mad at Hyundai or Ford or Chevy or whoever when they give us a manual that that says do this and don't do this. We go, oh, thanks. You're You're the designer of this thing. We get it. Okay, we know. Why do we get mad at God who essentially gives us the same thing? He gives us a manual about how to operate life. And we're mad when he says, don't do these things or do these things. Well, why is that? It's not because we're being reasonable. Right. It's because we just don't like it because we want to do our own thing. We love darkness rather than light. And I think in your chapter on morality and evil, this is you often go back to that. And I appreciate that. And that when I've watched your debates so often, um, people might bring up violence in the old Testament, but then you'll quickly say, you know, uh, all of a sudden you really like to see God respond to evil, right? I Mm -hmm. I hear this pretty regularly that you want God to do something about this. And when he did, you don't like it very much, right? That's That's right. When God, 
Yeah, well, yeah. When they're always complaining, why doesn't God stop evil? And then, when in, in terms of the Can- Canaanites who are literally sacrificing their children to Molech, God steps in and stops it. And they're going, "That's wrong." Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Talking about, look, you can't have it both ways. You want God to intervene or not? Okay, He does, and now you're mad. Well, because He killed children. Yeah. Well, okay. That's what it seems to say, and maybe maybe that is actually the case. It could be hyperbole, as Paul Copan talks about right. in his book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? But even if God does decide to kill people, it's not the same as us doing it. Right. Why? Because God is the author of life. He can take life anytime he wants. If he wants to judge people at any age, he can. And he can resurrect them into the next life because, look, if Christianity is true, people don't die. They just change location. Right. They go from this life to eternity. And it's up to God when that happens. We don't have the authority to take life unless we're part of a just government who are protecting the innocent from evil. But as individuals, we don't have the, the, the authority to take life. But God certainly does. Right. So and sometimes I'll I'll ask them, Andy, when they ask that question, you know, about the Canaanites and they're all upset about it, I'll ask them, well, where are you on the abortion issue? Are you a pro-life or pro-abortion? And almost invariably they say pro-abortion. And I go, wait a minute. Why is it that when God plays God in the Bible and decides who lives and dies, he's immoral? But when you play God here on earth and you decide who lives and dies by way of abortion, you think that's your moral right. Why do you have a moral right to kill, but God doesn't? Right. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's very inconsistent. And, and that you use the morality argument like C.S. Lewis's argument pretty regularly, because that just seems to come up on uh, almost every, uh, most of the questions that you are moral and, questions. Right. Yeah. And, and what what forms do those take? Particularly like I, 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 I find benefit from watching you engage on secular campuses. And generally, that's what people are wanting to talk about. What are some of those questions that come up? Yeah, well, questions on morality, I think, are probably about 70 percent of the questions we get on a college campus. You know, you could talk about the beginning of the universe, the design of the universe and the design of life. And then you talk about morality. People can ignore the creation. People can ignore design, but it's really hard to ignore morality because they deal with it every day. Right and wrong. They're dealing with every day. And on a college campus, people have a very overdeveloped sense of justice, right? They think they've got all sorts of causes they're for or against, right? Everyone has a right to this, a right to that. So they're really dialed in on on morality and justice. Well, I point out, look, if there is no God, there's no justice and there are no rights. Everything's just a matter of opinion, right? It's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. But anyway, the questions, here are the moral questions you get. If God, why evil? Obviously, a moral question. Why does God allow certain evils? That's another moral question. Uh, The LGBTQ issues are always coming up, right? That's that has to do with morality and rights. But there are even questions that don't appear to be on the face of them moral questions, but they really are. Like, what about those that have never heard? Right. That's actually a moral question because it's somehow alleging that God is immoral if he doesn't get the gospel to everyone. Or why did God send people to hell? He or he, he or why did God create people he knew would go to hell? Right, that's a moral question. Uh, the questions these, themselves these are, are evident are, are d- display a re- that they're stealing from God. Yes, the, the questions in themselves depend upon the reality of uh, a creator, preserver, and governor of all things. Right, slavery in the Old Testament's a moral question. Uh, Canaanites' moral question. Mm. Right. These are all moral questions. Now, 
when an atheist brings any of these up, I'll normally ask them, well, why are those things wrong if there is no God, right? right. What, by what standard are you saying that say God is immoral because he kills the Canaanites? Where does that come from? Now, an atheist has no objective standard by which to judge that wrong, but in his heart, he knows it is wrong that innocent people shouldn't die, right? And he thinks right, the right. Canaanites are innocent, even though they're really not, right? So he's, he's asking a question uh, that presupposes a moral standard. So you always have to ask him, where's this moral standard come from? Right. Now, an atheist doesn't really have a moral standard, an objective one. What he can say is, okay, well, you claim your, your God is a God of love. Why does he kill the Canaanites? Okay, that's a fair question to, to ask a Christian, right? Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't have a moral standard himself. What he could say, and this is a fair point, you could say, well, look, uh, I'm not an atheist. I'm a theist. But I think the God of the Bible is not the true God. That's a fair position to take, right? You can say, sure. now I can impugn the God of the Bible for what I, what I see uh, as doing immoral things, because I do have a standard. The true God just isn't the God of the Bible. The problem is, if you take that position, then you've got to deal with all the evidence that the God of the Bible is the true God. And that right. goes right through the resurrection, because if Jesus rose from the dead, He's affirmed the Old Testament. He's affirmed Yahweh. He says he is Yahweh. He says he's the great I am. He's affirming that the things that go on in the Old Testament have to do with judgment. They're not, they're not uh, immoral uses of, of, of force. They're judgment. That's what's going right. on. And Whatever uh, so, God has created, whatever God they have, probably then is the, their own uh, uh, projection of their own desires of what that God would be. Yeah, that's a problem. When people say, I don't believe in God, you can sometimes ask them, what, what kind of God don't you believe in? Right. Because after they describe them, I'm going to say, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Now, the, the second chapter you have talks about reason, how reason is something that is taken in, in itself. Now, we talked about that a little bit, like the, the way that we're able to just even make logical moves in the universe. But how is reason distinguished from causality? Well, atheists believe that we're just molecular machines, that mm -hmm. we're moist robots. Why? Because there's no immaterial realm. Everything's just made of molecules. So my question is, if everything's made of molecules, how do we even reason? Right? Mm -hmm. How do we even come to valid conclusions? Because if I'm a molecular machine and I'm driven completely by the laws of physics, why should I think anything I think is true? I'm not reasoning wow. to a valid conclusion based on the evidence. I'm not following the evidence where it leads. I'm following physics, right? Now, nobody said this better than C.S. Lewis. So let me, let me give you a short quote from Lewis on this because okay. Lewis saw this problem, you know, 70 years ago. And here's how he put it. He's talking about our minds and the fact that our, our minds and brains are not the same. But if you're a materialist, you think your, your mind and brain is the same. And there's no intelligence that gave you your brain. Here's what he said. He says, suppose there was no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Mm. He says, thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. <laughs> Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. 
Wow. Boom. I mean, you can't say it better than that, right? It reminds me, I had somebody refer me on to a um, uh, This American Life episode where the whole time they just talked about ants and how amazing ants were and how they they move about the world. And they were really Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how is it that it can build these sophisticated colonies. And finally, they had this scientist and that scientist, they came on and they indicated, okay, there's something that happens in the brain there's some movement and not brain, whatever, whatever it is. There's some biological thing that they could trace. But then, then they said, well, why is that? Well, we don't know, right? <laughs> it's like, we, it just, there's something happens there. It, it, to me, I thought like, what, well, you go through all of this, all of this explanation and you can't physically explain, you can't scientifically explain why it is that mm-hmm. they build these gigantic colonies. Like, why is it like the, the way our ability, like in our brain, even I, I, not that I'm like a cognitive scientist, but um, what we don't know about our brain activity is wild to me and how we can have an opportunity to think about our thoughts, the existence of our conscience, that there could be an immaterial reality. That's That to me in itself often points to um, a, a, a way to start with conversations with people. Well, there is an immaterial reality, and part of it is just even thinking, right? Because again, mm-hmm. if you're if we're all just molecules in motion, moist robots, we we shouldn't be able to trust our thoughts, but we can trust our thoughts. So if we can trust our thoughts, we ought to reason from that effect back to a cause, right? And if the if if the cause is just molecules bumping into one another. That's not an explanation. The cause is really is really a mind. The reason our minds work is because our, our mind is made in the image of the great mind. Mm. And without that, we shouldn't trust anything we think, but we can trust what we think. In fact, Andy, when people ask me, you know, how do you know God exists? I say, I know God by his effects. Mm. So that's what scientists do. They start with an effect, they reason back to a cause. So if there's a creation, and there is, that's the effect, you've got to reason back to a cause of creator. Uh, if there is design, and there is, you have to reason back to a cause of designer. If there's a moral law written on our hearts, and there is, you have to reason back to a cause of moral law giver. If we have the ability to reason and come to valid conclusions, in other words, we have a mind, we have to reason back to a cause, a great mind who gave us this ability. Mm. And so we're reasoning from effect to cause. And that's what scientists do. So the scientific way of discovering that God exists is you reason from effect back to cause. Yes. So we, we, we hit, uh, we've hit on some of the other ones in, in your crime. So we got C and R. The next one we, we've touched on a little bit too, information and intentionality. How is that stolen from God? Well, let's talk about, well, information has to do with the information in the genome. Okay. You know, that there's, it's 3.2 billion letters long in every cell. Wow. And if I if you were walking along the beach and you saw in the sand, John loves Mary, you would immediately go, oh, there's got to be a mind that did this. You wouldn't say the waves made it. The crabs made it. You know, you'd go, oh, John or Mary did this. Right. Right. Well, if John loves Mary requires a mind, how about a message that's three point two billion letters long? Hmm. Right. I mean, it requires a mind as well. And uh, Stephen Meyer has done the real groundwork on this in his book, Signature in the Cell. So that's that deals with information and scientists have no idea how information can come from natural laws. It can't. It, it, repetitive natural laws won't give you information. You need a mind to do that. Mm. And so it's not a God of the gaps argument to say, well, you know, we just haven't found a natural law for this yet. It's actually 
you're not arguing from what you don't know, which is what a God of the gaps argument is. You're arguing from what you do know. So, for example, when you see John loves Mary in the sand, there's not a gap in your knowledge. You don't just lack a natural cause for that. You have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause, John or Mary, right? Same thing is true when you see this 3.2 billion letter genome, your DNA. You don't just lack a natural explanation for that. You have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being. Now, we don't know if this intelligent being is the God of the Bible. It doesn't get you all the way to that, but it could be the God of the Bible. That's all we're saying. You, you, know, you couple this with the cosmological argument, the argument from the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning argument, uh, the moral argument, the argument from reason we just mentioned, and Jesus rising from the dead. Then you realize that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,988 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. But you, you don't get that from one argument. you got to add all the arguments up, and then you realize that Jesus is the creator. So starting starting from creation just seems to be such a great place to go to when you're, you're mm -hmm. moving through. It's like, why is there something rather than nothing? And, right. and to me, that points to even like how we affirm some of the basic claims in scripture. One of the interesting things we've... Um, we're offering at Wesley Biblical Seminary right now a course in spiritual warfare. And a lot of times people are very cautious about acknowledging the existence or reality of the demonic. And certainly scripture only gives us so much that where we can fill that picture up. But they're mm -hmm. certainly affirming the uh, non-physical world, affirming the fact that they're that the Bible demonstrates this on a regular basis. Um but I point back when, when we've had some pushback on this class, I said, well, you know, we say in the Apostles' Creed, you know, that we affirm the creator. <laughs> and we, we're talking about a miraculous thing. And when we talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, we talk about creation out of nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, a pretty, that's a pretty strong claim. If we can affirm that, that can also then help us go to things that are beyond uh, the physical world as we experience them now. Right. Let me say one other thing, too, about yeah. the eye in crimes. Uh, you mentioned the ants. You know, why do they do what they do? Aristotle could have told them because Aristotle discovered this 2400 years ago, not particularly about ants. But he noticed that all of nature is going in a direction. Like, for example, why does an acorn, if it's properly nourished, always become an oak tree? You know, why doesn't it become an elm tree or a birch tree or a seahorse? Right. You say, well, yeah. it's programmed to become an oak tree. Yeah. Well, who programmed it? And is an acorn conscious? No, an acorn is not in the ground going, all right, what do I have to do to become an oak tree, right? It's unconscious. Yet, if it reliably goes in a direction, and it does, and it doesn't have a mind of its own, there must be an external mind directing it toward an end. And that is what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. I mean, as you know, the unmoved mover in Aristotle's world wasn't a big bang unmoved mover. It wasn't a creator. Right. Like he thought, mistakenly thought the universe was eternal. What Aristotle was saying is that there needs to be a cause, a mind cause, every single second of existence. And so Thomas Aquinas comes along and he says, this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God, that all of nature is going in a direction. Well, if it's going in a direction, there must be some sort of director right? Mm -hmm. Natural laws. Why are they so orderly and precise and all going in a direction, driving things toward an end, driving things toward a goal, driving things toward what, what both Aristotle and Aquinas would call a final cause? Because there's a mind behind all this, right? There's a mind yeah. behind nature. 
And that mind is what we mean by God. This is why Paul could come along and say, you know, after Aristotle and say, in him, we live and move and have our being. And Christ holds all things together. And the writer of Hebrew says, God sustains all things by his powerful word, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't just create it and leave it. That's deism. Right. He creates it and he sustains it every single second of existence. Right. And, and so you, you could put it this way, that God is to the universe what a band is to music, mm -hmm. right? A band creates and sustains the music as it's playing. But once the band stops playing, the music's over. Same thing is true with God. God creates the universe. He creates the natural laws that drive the universe. He creates us and he sustains the universe, the natural laws that drive it. He sustains us every single second. And so if he were to go out of existence, so would we, or if he were to pull his hand away, so would we, we wouldn't exist anymore. Mm. Wow. So this is an argument that says, look, even if you want to argue for, say, macroevolution, you're not getting rid of the need for God. Why? Right. Because the laws that drive macroevolution, and I don't think macroevolution is true. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying for the sake of argument. Right. It, the laws that drive macroevolution need a cause, a sustaining mm. cause. And that's what we mean by God. Wow. I, this, I, the connecting it to the unmoved mover, um, one of the things I've often thought of, about this uh, sustaining cause is that what I, what's missed in that sometimes is the personal nature of God, like that he, mm -hmm. he reveals himself in the person of Jesus, and he is eternally three persons existing in a loving relationship. So that's all, mm -hmm. often been like what I've tried to push away. But I'm, I'm really glad to, I feel like it's a good critique for me, even like I've been critical of the unmoved mover side of things at times because of that. But at the same time, this sustaining cause is so important. Right. Well, Aristotle didn't have a full orb view of God. And he right. never got his philosophy and his religion together. He didn't worship the unmoved mover. He just said there had to be this mind that kept everything going. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can take what you want from Aristotle. Aquinas really baptized Aristotle. And uh, I think rightfully so in the sense that God is a sustaining cause. And that's why these scriptures talk about this, right? Yeah. He doesn't just create and leave. He has to sustain it every minute. Yes. Let's get this. Uh, the, uh, we've got to morality and evil. Real quick, uh, science. How is mm -hmm. that's the that's the S of your crimes? Um, how is science stolen by atheists? Well, for the very reason we just mentioned that 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 in order for science to work, you have to have an orderly universe. Mm -hmm. You have to have natural laws and cause and effect, reliable cause and effect. And that is best explained by a mind. It's not explained by just molecules bumping into one another. First of all, why did, where did the molecules come from to begin with? And why did they, why did they follow a law-like pattern? Mm. Where do laws come from? They come from lawgivers, right? There's a sustaining cause that keeps everything going. And the title of the chapter, by the way, is Science Doesn't Say Anything, Scientists Do. Wow. And yeah. you can just think about it right now. Well, why do we get conflicting advice on COVID? People will say, follow the science. And then you got to ask them, well, which science? Right. Yeah. Because science doesn't say a word. It's scientists that say things. And why do I say that? Because all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Scientists do that. Right. right? right. The reason we have different advice on COVID is because scientists may be looking at different data and therefore they come to different conclusions, or they may be looking at the same data and interpreting that data differently. 
or they may have inadequate data and yet still trying to draw conclusions from it. Or there might be a political agenda going on where, which it sure seems to me there is, right? (laughs) There's just too many contradictory things going on in the whole COVID debate that you're going, wait, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, why do you want everybody vaccinated? Uh, Why are you worried about unvaccinated people if the vaccine protects you from the, from the disease? Apparently the vaccine doesn't protect you from the disease, right? Right. Uh, Because you can still get it and still pass it. In fact, quietly, I don't know if you've noticed this, but just on September 1st of 2021, the CDC changed their definition of vaccine. They got rid of the word immunity. Now they just say protection because the COVID vaccine is not a traditional vaccine. It's not like smallpox or polio. Right. It's It's a vaccine that tamps down the symptoms when you get it, apparently, but it doesn't prevent you from getting it. Right. Or passing it to others. This is why even Ron DeSantis in Florida about a month ago saying, why, why do we have 300% more cases of COVID a year after this whole thing started when we have a vaccine? Why, why, why is that? Why? <laughs> it's, 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 it's obviously vaccine. the vaccine isn't a yeah. real vaccine, right? Yeah. Polio, we, we, like polio vaccine, stop polio. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm not saying don't get a vaccine. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying that that scientists say things, not science. And you've got to look at the data they have, see if they gathered it correctly, see if it's good data and then see if they're interpreting it rightly. Right. And 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 this goes right to the creation evolution debate, Andy, as you know, because why do so many scientists believe in macroevolution? I submit to you, it's not because the evidence shows that it's because they have been taught that because early on it might appear to have been the case that evolution were true until we learned a lot more about all the impossibilities that would have to occur for evolution to occur like you'd have to overcome uh, you'd have to overcome irreducible complexity uh, DNA would 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 create a new body plan where we know now that's not the case DNA does not create new body plans you need epigenetic information to do this. We cover this all in the book, by the way. I know I'm going through technical stuff now. Also, uh, the fossil record in Darwin's day, we thought we'd we'd investigate the fossil record and discover all these transitional forms, and he thought that would that would happen. Well, 160 years later, we've investigated the fossil record, and we still don't have transitional forms. Certainly not in the number we would need to say macroevolution is true. So now people think, well, yeah, macroevolution is true. Uh, and they're starting to realize that there's a lot of problems with it. In fact, in 2016, the Royal Society, that uh, august scientific affiliation out there in uh, the UK, which uh, one of their ne- founders of it or one of the initial members of it was Isaac Newton. Yeah. In 2016, they had a, a conference where they, they said, we need to find a new theory of evolution because neo-Darwinism doesn't work. We wow. know that mutating DNA and natural selection is not going to give us a new body plan. We need a new naturalistic definition, or or I should say theory. And they all met. They didn't come up with a new theory, but they know the current theory is crumbling. Yeah. And so science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. And that you you just really need to be aware of that when a scientist says something or uh, someone on the news says, science says we have to do X, Y, or Z, right? Now, hold on, time out, which science? And what's the evidence? Or they say, the science. The The science. They bring it up in 
uh, yeah. you know, the science or just not good science. I'm like, right, right. Are you really reading that literature? So I think that's it's an interesting point. Now we went in, there's some fairly technical things there and you break these things down and you have a lot of resources that you offer. I just love for you to tell people about some of those things that you have available. Yeah, well, if go to crossexamine.org, that's the hub and crossexamine with a D on the end of it.org. And if you go there, uh, you'll see so many blog articles. You'll also see some videos. And if you go to our YouTube channel, cross-examine, two words, you'll see over a thousand short videos. Some of them are longer too, the entire presentation we have up there and some interviews as well. We have a podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, where we go through some of these once a week. It's about a 48-minute podcast, and it's on the American Family Radio Network, as you know. We have an app, two words in the app store, cross-examine, which has the podcast, has the TV show streaming live, and has a quick answer section on it as well that people can use right off their phone. Yeah. So uh, if they go there, they'll and they'll get notifications when we're doing a live event because we stream everything live. Uh, we 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 normally do a show every Thursday night, anywhere between seven and 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 nine Eastern. Um, mm. And then we also, when we go on a college campus, we stream that as well. So you have events, uh, training events and things there that they can find that all on that. They do. It's all there. Yeah. We have a training event every year called CIA cross-examine instructor Academy, where people can learn um, how to present evidence and how to answer questions, not just from me, but from other apologists. In fact, uh, this coming year in July, it'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio. It moves around. Okay. I love, love that you're doing all that. And of course at Wesley biblical seminary, we have, we offer an MA and apologetics as well. And we have a whole group there. I don't know, maybe we can pull you in as adjunct professor sometime. I'd love to get all you right, in. man, thanks. Uh, but uh, no, I want to just kind of personally think about some of the things like I, I've watched these videos and you have, you'll have a room full of people, like a, a hundred people lined up just to, to try to nail you. And it's an interesting moment. Like God's gifted you in a unique way to be able to handle that pressure to be able to respond charitably, but also definitely. And I'm just curious, like in, in some of those examples that you've had, could you tell of like one moment that was just a beautiful, like a, a hopeful story that came there? And then maybe one that challenged you, one that like you weren't quite sure how you're going to respond. I, I just love to hear a, a story or two from those experiences. Well, actually, uh, you get a lot of the same questions over and over again. It's really not that hard. People think it's hard. It's not. I mean, if, if you if you know the material, it's not hard. And I think the the primary the primary tactic that I mentioned earlier is just to turn the claim back on itself, because there are so many assumptions, Andy, underneath the question being asked yeah. that if you just question the assumption, then the pressure's off you. It's back on the other person. You know, they say if there's a good God, why is there evil? What do you mean by evil? Mm-hmm. Right. Because now you're going to presuppose a standard of good. And if you're presupposing a standard of good, you're back to God. Right. Yeah. Uh, or if they ask a question, you know, the Bible's been changed throughout the centuries. What do you mean by that? Yeah. And how did you come to that conclusion? What evidence do you have for that position? So you're just turning the claim back on itself. Now, sometimes you get atheists and they get a little vociferous. And I always ask them if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Yeah. Because that again, throws it back on them to see how open they are. Cause most of the time they're not open, as I mentioned earlier, and they can see these interactions on our website. Now, the good things that happen is we get Christians encouraged. And sometimes we get an atheist who, who does eventually become a Christian, usually not on the spot, but they'll think about it. Right. Right. Uh, and some of the more challenging things are just 
what I think about when, when there's some 20 year old kid up in a microphone, I don't get upset if they're mad or they're angry because I think, look, why should I expect some 20 year old kid to agree with me? Mm. You know, I'm like 60 now. Why, why would I, why would I, I didn't, I didn't think the way I think now when I was 20. Right. Yeah. So why would I think this kid should agree with me? I shouldn't. So I just try and treat them like anybody else and say, okay, why do you think that's true? And why do you believe that? Yeah. I, I, you shouldn't get mad at people. Right. In fact, Paul famously said, look, I was an insolent and arrogant man, but Christ showed me mercy. Right. Yeah. Uh, all of us are on some sort of spiritual journey, either going toward Jesus or away. And we shouldn't expect everybody to be where we are. Look, right. we weren't even where we are, say, 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. So yeah. why should we expect everybody to be where we are now? We shouldn't. Right. But this podcast is called More to the Story. And uh, if people look into you and follow you like I do, and like my kids know the intro and uh -huh. they know your voice, uh, like this one thing, but babe, is there more to the story of Frank Turk? Like, is there something you like to do? You like to snorkel? Is there something kind of unique about uh, Frank that others might not know? Is oh, there more gee. More to the story of Frank Well, Turk? I have a great wife and three sons and one grandson. Oh, there fact, you go. The wife Stephanie handles all of this stuff that you see online in terms of uh, uh, books and DVDs and that kind of thing. And she also runs our little university called OnlineChristianCourses.com. So we we do online courses uh, from, uh, you know, from our own homes. So okay. if they go to crossexamine.org and click on that, they'll see that. Without her, I wouldn't be doing any of that. Um, I'm a runner. I, okay. I like to work out. You know, I used to run marathons years ago, but not anymore. And in fact, years ago, I was in a world record race. Where are you? I finished 43 minutes behind Alberto Salazar, who set the world record in the marathon. <laughs> 1981 New York City Marathon. But you were in the race. I was in the race. I yeah. could say I was in a world record event. You know, you can't say, you know, not many people can say that. So, you know, that's yeah. my claim to fame right there. There you go. So, and you, uh, yeah. you also, you're writing a book with your son. Is that right? Or yeah, it's called movie? Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. It'll be out in April. In fact, right now, today, I'm just going through the galleys and making final you know, minor corrections to it. So yeah, we're going through stuff. We're going through f f fun movies like Iron Man, Captain America, Star Wars, you know, uh, Batman, Wonder Woman, Lord of the yeah. Rings, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and showing how you can use those movies to point to Jesus. Yeah. Oh man. I love it. So. Well, we, Frank, I so much appreciate your time and coming on this podcast and the ministry of God's life to you. And I appreciate you like not letting it seem like when I said, you know, how I admire you, why I admire you. That's one, one thing, but also putting it back on me and everybody who's listening, like it's not that hard. And no, it's, it's not, not, and we can't just say, oh, Frank's exceptionally gifted rhetorically that we'll just let him do that. No, this is our mm -hmm. job too. Like we yeah, need right. to be contending for the faith uh, once for all delivered to the saints, uh, just like you are. So thank you for setting an example for us, for the resource that you provided and for coming on today. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Good to see you.